Hello, and welcome to episode number 19 of Stride and Saunter. I'm one of your hosts, Kip Clark. And I'm Hector Marrero. And today we're actually going to try something a little bit different. I'm going to do a reading from one of my favorite books called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff by Richard Carlson. So basically, for those who don't know, it's just a self-help book, some advice on how to be a bit happier, have less stress, and in general, feel better about some things in life. So I'm going to read from four chapters of the book, and Hector and I are going to discuss and react to some of the things he has to say. I also want to clarify this is not an advertisement for the book. It's just a book that I really like and felt like sharing with you all. So here we go. Also, I've never read the book. All right, chapter seven. (laughs) It's called Don't Interrupt Others or Finish Their Sentences. It wasn't until a few years ago that I realized how often I interrupted others and or finished their sentences. Shortly thereafter, I also realized how destructive this habit was, not only to the respect and love I received from others, but also for the tremendous amount of energy it takes to try to be in two heads at once. Think about it for a moment. When you hurry someone along, interrupt someone, or finish his or her sentence, you have to keep track not only of your own thoughts, but of those of the person you are interrupting as well. This tendency, which by the way is extremely common in busy people, encourages both parties to speed up their speech and their thinking. This in turn makes both people nervous, irritable, and annoyed. It's downright exhausting. It's also the cause of many arguments, because if there's one thing almost everyone resents, it's someone who doesn't listen to what they are saying. And how can you really listen to what someone is saying when you are speaking for that person? Once you begin noticing yourself interrupting others, you'll see that this insidious tendency is nothing more than an innocent habit that has become invisible to you. This is good news, because it means that all you really have to do is begin catching yourself when you forget. Remind yourself, before a conversation begins if possible, to be patient and wait. Tell yourself to allow the other person to finish speaking before you take your turn. You'll notice right away how much the interactions with people in your life will improve as a direct result of this simple act. The people you communicate with will feel much more relaxed around you when they feel heard and listened to. You'll also notice how much more relaxed you will feel when you stop interrupting others. Your heart and pulse rates will slow down and you'll begin to enjoy your conversations rather than rush through them. This is an easy way to become a more relaxed, loving person. So Hector, what are some of the first thoughts that go through your head when you hear that chapter? Yeah, one, I like it because I don't think... I I know that I myself didn't notice that I did this, but I did this a lot. In fact, sometimes it would get so bad that I would be listening to somebody and I would just say the same word over and over again as if to say a sentence, but I could only say the first word of the sentence because I was interrupting not just once, but over and over again and trying to get my own thought out there. But the clearest thought or the clearest memory I got out of listening to this passage was one of my favorite things uh, about going home for Thanksgiving or Christmas is that I spend some time driving with my dad. And we'll go, you know, upstate or we'll go a couple places. We'll go shopping together. We'll go buy groceries together. And usually we'll have a pretty deep discussion because I've been away at college for so long. My dad's been in New York. And finally, we're here together in the same car. And the thing that gets us fighting the most and the thing that gets us arguing is usually that one of us interrupts the other. And most of the time that happens between both of us. So I'll interrupt him first and then he'll interrupt me and then I'll tell him, hey, listen, you interrupted me. And it becomes this weird little circle and then we get kind of frustrated with one another and we're like not talking to each other. 
But then we give each other a hug after we get out of the car and, you know, help each other with the groceries back into the house and put everything away. But uh, yeah, me and my dad interrupting each other uh, in the car. That's the thought that comes runs through my head. It's interesting that you mentioned family because I've had numerous conversations, many of which were in adolescence with my family, particularly my mom and dad, where I would interrupt them all the time. And I think part of it was that I felt what they had to say or what they were going to describe had been predictable because when you live with someone or a group of people for so many years, you do start to pick up patterns. You know on some level what they're going to say, but they didn't repeat themselves as much as I probably thought they were going to. And I think as a result, I've missed out on a lot of useful advice and unique stories because you sort of anticipate. And I think to me it's interesting because when I interrupt people or have in the past interrupted them, I think I rationalize that by saying, that if I know what they're going to say, it's because I was listening very clearly to what they were saying. And so I'm saving them the effort or I'm proving it how good I was at listening because I know where they're going and I can anticipate the trail of the conversation before it gets there. But you can't predict everything. And I also think it's rude to deny someone the opportunity to show you what they were going to say. So I think it's a really interesting chapter. I also think he makes a good point about how much energy it takes to interrupt someone and try and think of both your thoughts and someone else's thoughts. And I notice myself in a number of conversations panicking or worrying about who's going to say what and what the other person is thinking. So I think it's a really interesting thought. And I think the most frustrating thing is if you're meeting somebody for the first time and you interrupt them, then that person can say, man, this guy just doesn't listen. This chick just doesn't listen. And that can be frustrating. Then all of a sudden you've lost that connection or you've lost that entryway into having that connection with this person. So yeah, I, I think it's great to be aware of that. Absolutely. So the next chapter I'm going to read is called Chapter 21, Imagine Yourself at Your Own Funeral. This strategy is a little scary for some people, but universally effective at reminding us of what's most important in our lives. When we look back on our lives, how many of us are going to be pleased at how uptight we were? Almost universally, when people look back on their lives while on their deathbed, they wish that their priorities had been quite different. With few exceptions, people wish they hadn't sweated the small stuff so much. Instead, they wish they had spent more time with the people and activities that they truly loved and less time worrying about aspects of life that, upon deeper examination, really don't matter all that much. Imagining yourself at your own funeral allows you to look back at your life while you still have the chances to make some important changes. While it can be a little scary or painful, it's a good idea to consider your own death and, in the process, your life. Doing so will remind you of the kind of person you want to be and the priorities that are most important to you. If you're at all like me, you'll probably get a wake-up call that can be an excellent source of change. Hector, what are your first thoughts on that one? When I imagine my own funeral, I imagine it similar to how Edward Abbey was buried. I don't actually know who that is. Edward Abbey is a nature writer from the mid to early to mid-20th century. The book I read about him was called Desert Solitaire, and it recalled three years he spent in Utah. I read it when I went to backpack in Utah for the very first time, and I've read it a couple of times since then. I love that book. But uh, Edward Abbey, he wanted to be buried out in the desert under a rock by his friends. Like He wanted his friends to just take him out into the desert, bury him in an unmarked grave, and then party, you know, and celebrate and uh, make love love uh, <laughs> after his death in celebration of life. And I was that's, that's what I think about when uh, I'm going to pass away. Or when I think about dying, that's what I think about. So, th- yeah, I usually hope that there is joy 
present in the lives of people at my passing. I don't really care to be buried in a casket or whatever. I just hope that memories and recollections and stories can be shared in such a way as to revitalize everyone instead of bring them down and make them sad. But I don't know if that really resonates with the chapter itself because the chapter is really recalling your life and hoping that you're remembered well. So, yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Well, in fairness, I think everything you just said is valid and very interesting. My thoughts on it I agree. I always recoil a bit whenever death is brought up and people hesitate to talk about it or they're reluctant to acknowledge it because it is the one thing that ties us all together. Every person who's alive now is at some point going to die and everyone who has ever lived has at some point died. And I think that it's not inherently scary except for the fact that we don't know what happens afterwards. But I do think it's a good reminder that you don't have all the time in the world, that you have some time and you should make the most of it. And I think this chapter in particular touches on that because I think it's about making the most of your time. And I think teenagers in particular, as society often judges them and laments at the waste of their time, are immune to some of those ideas because when you're a teen, you think you're immortal, you have the privileges of being an adult, but you're no longer a child and you don't have the responsibilities of adulthood yet. And I think it's important to recognize that you don't have as much time as you think you do. And I think certain things remind us of how short life is and how meaningful you want it to be in looking back. And how some of those things really aren't that important. I think it's also a good reminder that the small dramas and smaller tragedies that we experience in the days and weeks of youth and even into early adulthood aren't always the most important things and don't carry as much gravity as I think we usually think they do. Well said. I also think that it's a reminder that one should live not only spontaneously but in a positive way and making sure that you're present, which I think we've mentioned in earlier podcasts, but I think being present in your life and making sure you're present with those around you, I think that's the most important or one of the most important things one can do in living a full life. Absolutely. I, I even think part of that chapter alludes to peer pressure and how we often do things not only because we think they're necessary or whatever, but because other people want us to do those things. Yeah. And although it doesn't discuss it directly, I think if it's something that is not of inherent value to you on some level, why bother doing it? You don't want to spend your entire life, or at least personally, I don't want to project, I wouldn't want to spend my entire life doing things that had no value to me at all just because they pleased other people. If I enjoyed it, that's different. But I think a lot of that chapter is about doing what's important to you because it has some meaning that only you need to understand and justify. So those are some of my thoughts. So the next chapter that I'm going to read, chapter 35, is called Look Beyond Behavior. Have you ever heard yourself or someone else say, don't mind John, he didn't know what he was doing? If so, you've been exposed to the wisdom of looking beyond behavior. If you have children, you know very well the importance of this simple act of forgiveness. If we all based our love on our children's behavior, it would often be difficult to love them at all. If love were based purely on behavior, then perhaps none of us would ever have been loved as a teenager. Wouldn't it be nice if we could try to extend the same loving kindness toward everyone we meet? Wouldn't we live in a more loving world if, when someone acted in a way that we didn't approve of, we could see their actions in a similar light as our teenagers' offbeat behavior? This doesn't mean that we walk around with our heads in the sand, pretend that everything is always wonderful, allow others to walk all over us, or that we excuse or approve of negative behavior. Instead, it simply means having the perspective to give others the benefit of the doubt. Know that when the postal clerk is moving slowly, he's probably having a bad day. 
or perhaps all of his days are bad. When your spouse or close friend snaps at you, try to understand that, beneath this isolated act, your loved one really wants to love you and to feel loved by you. Looking beyond behavior is easier than you might think. Try it today and you'll see and feel some nice results. That reminds me of the David Foster Wallace speech that he gave at Kenyon, I don't know how many years ago. 2005. 2005, yeah, this is water. Yeah, that's a great speech, and I think this resonates with the same topic of being patient with those around you and taking time to realize that they, too, live full lives and have their own stresses and have their own thoughts. And it's important to be aware of those around you. Kip, what do you think about this chapter? Yeah, I think it's a really good one, especially mm-hmm. parts about the postal clerk having a bad day or maybe all of his days are bad that I think we typically tend to scoff at people who treat us rudely or immediately talk about how it made us feel. And I think it's a bit close-minded and I'm not saying that I've never done it I think I've definitely been guilty of it but I think it is a good chapter that reminds us billions of people are living in the world right now each of them has their own story and when they wake up tomorrow they're going to experience their day you're going to experience yours and somewhere along the line they will differ and I think it's it's a chapter that reminds us about that difference and that we're not all in the same boat all the time and I think the comparison to teenagers and children is really important that beneath some of the actions of people are underlying values and principles that maybe they don't always express but that they would like to and i think that's really key that intention and action can be separated and sometimes they should be so i really liked it i think it was a good chapter now the last chapter i'm going to read is chapter 39 practice humility humility and inner peace go hand in hand the less compelled you are to try and prove yourself to others the easier it is to feel peaceful inside Proving yourself is a dangerous trap. It takes an enormous amount of energy to be continually pointing out your accomplishments, bragging, or trying to convince others of your worth as a human being. Bragging actually dilutes the positive feelings you receive from an accomplishment or something you are proud of. To make matters worse, the more you try to prove yourself, the more others will avoid you, talk behind your back about your insecure need to brag, and perhaps even resent you. Ironically, however, the less you care about seeking approval, the more approval you seem to get People are drawn to those with a quiet, inner confidence. People who don't need to make themselves look good, be right all the time, or steal the glory. Most people love a person who doesn't need to brag. A person who shares from his or her heart and not from his or her ego. The way to develop genuine humility is to practice. It's nice because you will get immediate inner feedback in the way of calm, easy feelings. The next time you have an opportunity to brag, resist the temptation. I discussed this strategy with a client, and he shared the following story. He was with a group of friends a few days after he had been promoted at work. His friends didn't know it yet, but my client was chosen to be promoted instead of another friend of theirs. He was a little competitive with this person, and had the very strong temptation to sneak in the fact that he had been chosen and their other friend wasn't. He felt himself about ready to say something when a little voice inside him said, Stop. Don't do it. He went ahead and shared with his friends, but didn't cross the line and turn the sharing into gloating. He never mentioned how their other friend didn't get promoted. He told me that he couldn't remember ever feeling so calm and proud of himself. He was able to enjoy his success without bragging. Later, when his friends did find out what had happened, they let him know that they were extremely impressed with his good judgment and humility. He received more positive feedback and attention from practicing humility, not less. 
think humility is a difficult thing to practice. I think despite it being a trait that is ideal, I think it is a difficult trait to practice. I think that it's difficult to keep the same mask for every single person that you meet and to not boast. And I wanted to ask you, there are people who are inclined to boast about the things that they do and get away with it. And it in turn, by virtue of there being somebody who boasts, other people in turn boast as well, as if calling out to try to, it's a competitive thing. To as one up someone. To, exactly, yeah. to one up someone. So I don't know if you have the answer to this, but where do you think the person with humility goes in that picture? What does the person who's humble do in a situation like that? That's a good question. I think on a large part, they don't say much. They might try and encourage other people to be humble or at least to be confident in themselves. I think on a personal level, I struggle with humility and not necessarily on the level of arrogance, but people have told me that I'm too humble, that I'm self-deprecating and don't admit when I've succeeded or done something well. And I think that trait is largely based on history that I've had around people, several people I can think of in particular, who were incredibly arrogant or who appeared to be overly confident very frequently in my childhood and early adolescence. And so I think as a response to them, psychologically, I recognized how frustrating it was to be around people like that all the time. And I think I balanced to the opposite extreme in trying to avoid arrogance at all costs and not seem overly boastful or too confident in what I had done or could do. And I think it's really important to be humble. I think humility isn't being ashamed. I think it's a very narrow line of recognizing your accomplishments, but not calling attention to them. And I think that the book did a good job of talking about how it's ironic, but you actually end up getting more praise when you don't call attention to yourself. And I think that feels better. I think that would be one thing I'd urge people to do if they're worried that they're not going to get praised. If you don't draw attention to things, but you keep working hard and doing whatever it is that you're doing, people will take note. He makes a very good point. People are drawn to that because it's not, it's not loud and it's not demanding. It's sort of accomplishments that request attention. And I think that people are willing to give that attention when it's something that isn't required of them or, you know, just drawn out of them with extreme force. I think gentleness is a really important quality that sort of goes hand in hand with humility. Do you know people in your life that are overly arrogant? And how do you typically respond to that? Yeah, I do know people who are overly arrogant. And I have people that I'm close to that I perceive as overly arrogant. At the same time, I also have a few close friends who are quite humble. When it comes to arrogance, I think when I'm aware of it, I try to make them aware of that behavior and aware of the arrogance so that they can cut down. Because I think that for some people, you just don't notice it. You just don't notice um, how you're acting or that you're acting in a way that may make people uncomfortable or may make people noticeably say, this is too much or this is unnecessary. I think humility is something that should be actively practiced and actively spoken about because I think it is a, a wonderful feature for somebody to really not have to boast about their own accomplishments or whatever. You mentioned praise, and in arrogance, there is a praise you get in this example, saying, if I were the guy who got the raise, if I told my friends at the bar or whatever, I got the job, they say, congratulations, good job, man, that was wonderful. And you also bring somebody down. Whereas in the other case, you receive praise, but there is no direct shutting down of the other person. But there is a need 
of praise in either situation, or at least praise is mentioned in both situations for both the arrogant man and the humble man. Do you think that calls to just the human need to be recognized? What what is it? What is it that praise that seems to be necessary, or at least desired in some way, and we strive for in either humility or arrogance? Yeah, I think there's a definite need for praise. I'm no expert, but I would say that humans, being social, thrive on the recognition that comes from other people. I think we love to know that another human being out there finds something we did to be positive or worthwhile or meaningful in some way. And I think that's an explanation for a number of things. Why do musicians have so many fans? Why does that system support itself? Because people like the attention. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think celebrity maybe takes it to a new level, but I think that we all like to know that someone else from any demographic or any age finds what we did to be positive or useful in some way. This topic also makes me think a lot about resumes and applying to things like college. And I remember being particularly frustrated with the application process to college and with certain jobs I've applied to because you have to sell yourself as the best worker or the best potential student at that institution. And I think it's difficult because I know a lot of humble people and I wonder if they also struggled or they felt weird about applying to colleges or trying to sell themselves when frankly it can feel unnatural to do that if you've had the habit or practice of being modest and not going out of your way to prove what you've done because everyone's got great accomplishments that they can talk about and I think the key is to know when to do that and so it was just interesting to me to think about college applications and stuff. Do you remember feeling weird about college applications at all? In what sense? Again? In, in the sense of accomplishments. Did you feel like you had to list everything you'd ever done greatly or you know, sort of make yourself out to be the best possible person? Did it feel unnatural? That's sort of the feeling that I remember having. Yeah, it did. And it reminds me of a specific situation that I was in. When I was in high school, there was this alumni who came over. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he worked directly with Martin Luther King Jr. In some way, I don't know if he worked uh, organizing, but he, he was involved with MLK at some point. And I met this man, and I didn't say too much about myself. I, I was a bit intimidated. He was an older fellow. I really did didn't know what to say or if anything I could say would interest him. But I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, you have to sell yourself. Sell yourself. And I didn't really like that idea. I do think that I do make a show when it comes to applying for something. I think in a way you have to. You kind of have to play ball and do this little show about yourself. Say, this is who I am. This is what I've done. But I think that it is possible to say, this is what I've achieved. Please ask me questions as to why, or <laughs> instead of boasting and saying, listen, listen to all the wonderful things that I've done, to say, this is what I've done, and let the employer or school or whatever ask the questions or elaborate. Yeah, I agree. So I want to ask the audience, you guys listening out there, what you thought of these readings. Did one of the chapters in particular resonate with you? Do you have any thoughts on interruptions and humility and the other things we've talked about? Any reactions or comments? Are there also any passages that you read often or passages that resonate with you that help you in your mind to be a better person? We'd also like to know about that. Yeah, and we would love to get some of those and maybe read them on the show because we think it'd be interesting. So Hector, if people do have passages or comments to leave with us feedback, where can they reach us? You can reach us at Stride N Saunter on Twitter, Stride and Saunter on Facebook. Our website is strideandsaunter.com. And you can email us at strideandsaunter at gmail.com. 
So as always, thank you for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Hector Moreau. Make sure to enjoy the sunset. Thank you.